But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. And welcome back to our Good Friday edition of the Daybreak Devotions on this Passion Week. Good Friday, which probably seems or sounds like one of the most ironic expressions that you could give when we are talking today about the crucifixion of Jesus. And this is Pastor Mike Barnett, along with Pastor Corey Cantrell from the McLeansville Baptist Church. Very good to be here today. And it is a good day. Now, we understand why it's a Good Friday. We understand what today is. It is the day that we remember that Jesus was crucified. And we will not have very much time today to do justice to this, but we're going to give it our best shot. We've had a great week as we've gone through the Passion Week, and of course, Friday, as far as the sufferings of Jesus, this is the, this is the capstone. This is what it has been coming to all along. This is the good place for us to settle in as we move into the weekend. Saturday, very quiet scripturally on Saturday, although we do have a few verses that speak of Saturday's events. But by and large, very quiet. The disciples will go into hiding and grieving, but Sunday's coming. Absolutely. And we do. We anticipate Sunday because we know how the story ends. But again, we're not, we don't wallow in Friday, but we re-enter into Friday, which is what we're going to be doing today. And, and how on earth do you do that in you know, 30 minutes to be able to do it justice, but to be able to call to remembrance, we got to get through this so that we can live in the victory that Sunday brings. We will consider ourselves the kicking team, and we're here to kick the ball off yes. in this 30-minute broadcast, but we've got the rest of the day, and the listeners have the rest of the day to spend time in this uh, passion of Jesus Christ with these readings. Today's gospel readings, by the way, if you want to write those down. If, but let me give you the daily readings if you want to go through these today. Matthew 27, verse 1 through 61. Mark 15, verse 1 through 47. Luke 22, verse 66 through chapter 23, verse 56. 
and then John 18, verse 28 through chapter 19, verse 20. Those are the gospel readings for Friday, the day of crucifixion. And, you know, I have all week been writing down some key words for each day. You know, Monday we had the uh, getting the house in order, and Tuesday we had the tough and tender Jesus, and Wednesday we had the worship and betrayal. Yesterday we had communion and, and the beginning of suffering. But today there's only one word for it, and that is the crucifixion, because that's what this is all about. And as I began to work through these scriptures myself, the first thing that caught my attention was just how much energy and emotion you find in these chapters, not just in regard to Jesus, but everybody in the story. This day is huge, mm-hmm. and it's affecting everybody, but in different ways. And the story of Jesus still does. Sure. Now, we have every day been taking time to sort of recap the day before, but then take a pause during our broadcast to allow time for some prayer and reflection. But today, we're going to push that to the end. I'm going to wait till we wrap up the discussion today. I think that would be fitting because of the nature of everything we're talking about and the amount of material and the thoughts that we could get, you know, tr- at least try to cover. There's just so many things, even the odds and ends, the oddities of the day. For example, and, and we'll come back to my primary thought that I wanted to lead off with was the, all the energy and emotion, but kind of to that point, what about that scene in Luke where Jesus is on the road to Golgotha and he has the conversation with the women that are yes. weeping? You know, that's one of those oddities that how, we could we could spend a good deal of time talking about that. That example kind of highlighted to me just off the other nature of the conversations that we've had this week. I think my overall thought with this day was uh, a statement that Pilate made in John 19.5 when he brought Jesus out and he said, Behold the man. I could not read today's readings without just being blown away by, look, look, at, look at what Jesus had already endured when he looked at those ladies and reinforced them, don't weep over me. Don't, don't grieve over me. Grieve for those that are still to come. Grieve for your offspring. Grieve for the ones that are going to follow in my name afterward. Those are the ones that you need to be grieving for. Who does that? Who has the mental capacity to even be thinking about anything else other than what he is physically going through? I mean, we've, this, this is beating a dead horse, but Jesus is definitely a marvel among men in all things. Well, the Bible does say they were amazed by him. Sure. So there's a lot of energy and emotion on this day. Some of it's coming from the realm of hatred, but far more of it is coming from love. And that will always be true because, you know, as, as much hatred as there may be in the world and as much wrath and hatred and, and vehemence as Satan will have, that will always be overcome by God's love, his, his supreme love. And that's really on display in all of this, too. But let's begin to walk down through this a little bit. I I wanted to refer, I know we've been in Mark all week, but I wanted to start out today with Matthew's account in Matthew 27. Because this is where I I started reading and I was captured by all the emotion that jumps off the page. So in Matthew 27, verse 1 and 2, when the morning was come. Now referring, remembering back, this is after Jesus has been arrested in the garden that night. He's already gone through his first mock trial. They've already began to accuse him and to... The beating hasn't got probably ferocious yet, but he's already endured some of that. And so when morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. 
And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And I was just thinking about the urgency of the priests and the elders and the Pharisees to get this done. You know, they've been plotting this for a while. They've been wanting to get rid of Jesus for a long time, and now they've got him in their grasp, and they are not going to waste time. And so they're going to take him to Pontius Pilate and get, get the Roman government involved in this and make sure that this thing happens while the getting's good. Of all of the things that they had to do to orchestrate to get it to this point, I forget where it was, whether it was Matthew or, or, or Mark's account, but, I mean, even one of the things that they accused Jesus of was he's, he's no friend of Caesar. He, he's been instructing his followers not to give tribute to Caesar and to do all this. And I think that caught my attention. I was like, man, that was literally one of the things that Jesus just a couple of days ago had flipped the penny to him and said, look, give it to Caesar. It's got his inscription on it. Do it. Give the tribute money. But just the raw energy of these guys and the trumped-up charges, I, I mean— to have that level of anger that not only are you going to use a guy's words against him, but you're not even going to represent him in anywhere remotely close to the right way just to be so blinded by the anger that they had towards him. Well, you're getting ahead of a thought I had in a way because what you're really bringing out there is how the convenience of marriage between church and state mm -hmm. always happens when one or the other feels like if they can yoke up with the, with the one that they're normally opposed to, Yep. For a common enemy, they will do it. And in the history of the church, there has, or religion, let's just say religion, anytime governments and religions are one, it has never been good. And in the history of the church, whenever the church and the state marry up, it has never been good for the cause of Christ. Right. And, you know, a lot of times we think, yeah, that's right. Look at when, look at when Rome and the church got together. Yeah, but we need to think about, even though we point the finger at them, how much we hear that cry for the same thing today in the United yes. States. We need a Christian government. We need a Christian president. We need a Christian governor. Well, that's good if you can get them. But we don't need them to be our Christian leaders. That's what the church is for. Anytime those marry up, that's what you had with you had the Herodians, yeah. that term in the Scripture. They were the church and state people. How, Very politically persuaded. Yeah, how ironic was the fact that the super-religious people that were looking for the Messiah that was going to deliver them from Rome were conveniently willing to use Rome to deliver them from the Messiah that they didn't want. And if you want to know the height of hypocrisy and, and just weirdness, in John 18, verse 28, when he tells us of this, it says that once they led him from Caiaphas' hall of judgment, they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be yeah. defiled but that they might eat the Passover. So they want to be real careful about it, you know. But not only do we have the urgency of the priests and the elders that day, but you've got the, the remorse of Judas that's brought out. In, in verse 3 of Matthew 27, Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? There again, there's no genuineness. There's no heart here for no. these people. What is that to us? See thou to it. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went out and hanged himself. Now that's that's a pretty good bit of emotion and energy, and it's remorse. The, the, the word used there, he repented himself. There is no genuine repentance from the heart. There's no there, there was genuine repentance in the sense of, yes, he had a change of his thinking. He had a change in the way he saw things. But that repentance did not lead him to a, a real confession and regeneration or 
you know, transformation, all those things that we would expect repentance to lead us to. What it led to was remorse and regret, and it so overtook him that he went out and took his own life. So that's a lot of energy in there. Then, here's a big one, the frustration of Pilate. And that really caught my attention. Don't have time to read all the verses, but really, I think the best account of that is in John's account. If you go to John 18 and in verse 29, Pilate then went out unto them and said, what accusation bring you against this man? And they answered and said to him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. You can see Pilate rolling his eyes. Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. Just over and over and over through this, Pilate is frustrated with these Jewish leaders. And then when he talks to Jesus, Art thou the king of the Jews? Verse 34, Jesus says, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it of thee? And he's like, man, would somebody give me a break? You know, I was just having breakfast with my wife, and this whole, what in the world, people? But, but more to the point, the frustration of Pilate that comes out to me is he, at least initially for whatever his motives are, wants to be done with this. And he doesn't see a reason for Jesus to be. But it turns to him being inconvenienced and frustrated to his cowardice coming out. Mm-hmm. And that is no more clearly seen, I think, than in John 19, verse 7 and 8, where it says of Pilate, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid. More afraid why? Well, his wife had already come to him and yep. said, I had a dream about this man. You should have nothing to do with him. And Pilate is afraid, and all he wants at this point is to get out of this. So washes his hands of it. Basically, I'm not responsible for this. I'm not guilty. Do what you want to do with him. I'm going to give the quote-unquote official blessing for you all to do it, but this isn't my decision, it's yours. That's right. You're making me do what I don't want to do. And then on top of it, you know, the people shout to have Barabbas let go. Again, Doc. I don't want to get political today. That's not the intent. But you cannot walk through this and not see this intertwining entanglement of these religious people and the government. When it's convenient, we want the government to come in and do our thing. We just don't want them to tell us how to do our thing. Mm -hmm. It's weird. But Barabbas was locked up because he was a, a rabble-rousing. He was an insurrectionist. He was an insurrectionist. And it made me think about, I wonder if Simon the Zealot, one of Jesus' disciples, knew Barabbas. They could have been of the same clan. Yeah, and I guess I never really realized what the the zealots were. Shout out to the chosen. You know, they they kind of do a good job of explaining what they this, were basically Jewish ninjas, right? Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> they they were people that were like, you know what, we're not waiting on this Messiah. It's time for us to take our deliverance into our own hands, and we're going to fight against Rome. Essentially, they were like the revolutionary movement of yes. the American Revolution. They were the patriots. Right. You know, they would have considered themselves the zealous patriots. And when Jesus got a hold of Simon, he gave up that revolutionary idea. Yes, he did. Then, not only do you have the frustration of Pilate, but you've got the cruelty and the depravity of the soldiers. And this really caught my attention. I know we've all seen it before, but my goodness, th these, these guys... How, how far, how low the human condition can get to be. Matthew 27, uh, between verse 27 and 36, is such a good representation of this in a, in a horrible way. But just the things that they did of Jesus, stripping him and then putting the crown of thorns on him and then hitting him over the head with the, the reed that they had used to mock him with. And, and then, then 
they dress him back up after they spit on him and all and, and take him out. And, and an interesting little detail, in Mark 15, when he tells about this, he says that once they brought Jesus in to do this, they brought the, the whole band. And if you look at what that means, they didn't bring out the orchestra. Right. They brought the entire regiment, the entire whatever, whatever their level of uh, troop strength would have been, whether it's a company or a regiment, whatever it was, they brought everybody out for the scourging. Now, I don't think every man in that unit scourged Jesus, although who's to say, but they brought them all out to watch it. They made an example of Jesus to the entire group. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a detail that, again, it's one of those oddities or details that sometimes we overlook, but, man, there was such a cruelty to these guys. And it makes you wonder if that level of cruelty is what led to the shaking of the centurion after the events of everything, where they're now, he's recounting what took place in the hours leading up to this, and that holy fear of, wow, we have, we've really messed up. We crossed crossed a major line. Yep. Well, I just thought as I was reading all those descriptions of their actions, does this represent how hardened our hearts can become? And the answer is yes. We all need a Savior. We all need a Redeemer, someone who can make us free from the curse of sin that is corroding our soul. And that's what was happening to these guys. You know, we have no idea the kind of things they experienced. Life mm-hmm. was hard then, and being a soldier, you know, was was tough, and there was a lot of ugly things that you would see and a lot of ugly things you were asked to do. Yes. And they were not only a military force, they were a police force. Yes. And it was not a good situation And the depravity of the human soul is just hard for us to imagine. You know, we read from Isaiah 53 as we started out today. Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. To the point you made, perhaps, the centurion that oversaw all of this. It was the very stripes they laid on Jesus that began to open up His heart to the truth that this was the Son of God. Mm-hmm. And you never know about uh, what happened to that centurion, but we certainly would like to hope that he and many others would have come to Christ. But I, you know, you think about the condition of their heart and the condition of our heart and the effect of this world on us. And I think about Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, about Jesus who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Had we been left alone, the moral depravity of the human soul is immeasurable. I guess the only way you could measure it is look at the suffering Jesus had to go through. Right. Look at what hell is, because that is the extent to which we would have to go to see just how depraved we could be. Paul said, and I was thinking about this this morning, reading this, Romans chapter 7, verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body or from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's, to me, what is represented as we watch the cruelty and the depravity of those soldiers. Jesus went through all of that because that was the necessary price for the healing of our own sinfulness and our own depravity. And then to go back to the statement of, of just beholding the man, think about what Jesus says in Luke twenty three thirty four. So he's, he's speaking to the multitude that is just, they've lost their mind and they are just bloodthirsty. But his prayer for them is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To have that level of enduring such injustice, which has 
never been known prior in human history and will never be known since. But to endure that and to still do it in such a way to harbor no ill will, no, no feeling of injustice other than, Father, they don't know what they're doing. They're, they're blinded by the real enemy. And to follow along with that same line of thinking, I actually put it as like my, my fifth thing I noted, but it goes very, very well with the depravity of those soldiers, and that's the callousness and the spite of the people that were observing all of this that day, not just the soldiers, because Matthew captures that in verse 39 through 44, and you know, they, they, they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. And the chief priests mocking, the scribes and elders. And then it even tells us here that the thieves which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now we know there'll be some uh, follow-on to that story that's recorded, I, I believe, in Luke, I think. But uh, just how much all of them are just jeering and leering at him. So it wasn't just the soldiers, but it began. Remember, all this began with the religious leaders. They were the ones that kicked this off, who started, who stirred the crowd up against Jesus from the get-go because we, we know that Sunday was the triumphal entry, and we are of a mind to think that there had to be some people in that crowd saying, Hosanna, who are now part of the crucify crowd. And it started with these religious leaders, the callousness of these people. And I tell you, religion does nothing for our heart. It actually takes us away from God. Yes. And that's why the gospel is so precious, because it brings us to God. I've been reading, I mentioned this, I think, yesterday, The Passion of Jesus Christ by John Piper. And there's a, there's a section of the book that speaks to that point I was just saying. What is the ultimate good in the good news? It all ends in one thing, God himself. All the words of the gospel lead to him, or they are not gospel. Salvation is not good news if it only saves from hell and not for God. Forgiveness is not good news if it only gives relief from guilt and doesn't open the way to God. Justification is not good news if it only makes us legally acceptable to God but doesn't bring fellowship with God. Redemption is not good news if it only liberates us from bondage but doesn't bring us to God. Adoption is not good news if it only puts us in the Father's family but not in His arms. This is crucial. Many people seem to embrace the good news without embracing God. There is no sure evidence that we have a new heart just because we want to escape hell. That's a perfectly natural desire, not a supernatural one. It doesn't take a new heart to want the psychological relief of forgiveness or the removal of God's wrath or the inheritance of God's world. All these things are understandable without any spiritual change. You don't need to be born again to want these things. The devils want them. It is not wrong to want them. Indeed, it is folly not to. But the evidence that we have been changed is that we want these things because they bring us to the enjoyment of God. This is the greatest thing Christ died for. Christ suffered once for our sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And that's the point. And, and as we look at the people around the cross that day, it cries out in unmistakable, loud, clear tones, people do need what Jesus and only Jesus could offer. Yes. Well, we are just now getting to what I wrote down as the passion of Jesus on the cross. I think we will all spend time on that today and probably some on Sunday leading up to resurrection as we think about that, and that's a good thing for us to do. But if you look at Jesus, I think one of the first things that has to grab you is the loneliness. He is 
grief-stricken. Mm-hmm. But again, Isaiah 53, which we were reading from earlier, verse 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And he is. He is grief-stricken on that cross. But this suffering, this agony of the cross, is what brings the revolution that begins to happen as we're watching the scene unfold. The veil in the temple gets rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Verse 51, the dead rising from the graves, verse 52 through 53. Another one of those oddities that we can talk about. But then the turning of the hearts is the biggest thing. That Roman centurion you mentioned, he's now looking and saying, surely this man was the son of God. The thief, the second thief on the cross who's watching Jesus endure all of this says, we are dying justly, but this man has done nothing worthy of death. And, And people's hearts begin to change that day. And that is what the agony of Jesus and the passion of Christ was bringing. And that's what we referred to yesterday. The old writers would say, if we will just dwell on the sufferings of Jesus, it will change our hearts. And so even we as believers need that. We need to focus on what Jesus has done for us because it will change and redirect us. There's so many other things we could talk about. The seven words of Jesus on the cross. We know about the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This day you will be with me in paradise. And then in John where he says, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Mm -hmm. But then the fourth thing he says is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now that's followed up with I thirst. Then it is finished, and then, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Are the order of these things important? Because if we read the different Gospels, you know, like, when did he say that? When did he say that? What was said first? I think they're important. The order's important because, number one, it's what Jesus said. That's him. But... One reason the order matters is I think it's quite possible that the fourth saying of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, had to proceed number six and seven. It is finished. Into your hands I commend my spirit. In Gethsemane, he surrenders. But think about this. He's still in the will of his father. He's still operating from connection with the father that ability to just yield to say not my will but thine be done he's doing that drawing strength from his relationship with his father but on the cross when he says my god my god why have you forsaken he does not have that and in that moment he has entered into uncharted territory nobody in the history of the world let alone the son of god has ever been apart from god's grace and his mercies and his kindnesses but jesus voluntarily went to that point where nobody else has ever gone and nobody will until they die without christ but it was in his own will that he had to choose that the father got him there he surrendered he got there but it was by his own will Now, there's something to think about. Jesus, in his own will, allowed himself to be removed from the very presence and help and grace and strength of the Father, and he willingly gave his life for us. That's a powerful thing to think of. So I'd like to close out this edition with a reading from C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, for those who are listening to this that aren't familiar with that, The Chronicles of Narnia are written as a spiritual allegory to our our walk of faith and our life in Christ, and particularly the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, where you really get a, a representation from Aslan as the crucified Christ. And that's the scene that I'm going to read from. The backstory story is, is that these children have found their way through the wardrobe into this 
magical world of Narnia where Aslan is the king. But Edmund, uh, the, the, one of the middle children, has betrayed the rest of the children and all of Narnia by giving himself over to the White Witch. He's, he's given all the secrets away. He's been lured in by the Turkish delights and basically sells his soul out to the evil one. Mm-hmm. And because of that, all Narnia now is in danger of falling under her eternal spell of condemnation and this eternal winter. The only thing that can break that spell is Aslan, and there's this deep magic. And unbeknownst to Edmund, in selling his soul, not only has he bound and enslaved all of Narnia, but even his own soul. Mm-hmm. Now he is the pawn and the ownership of the White Witch and the Evil One and has no hope of ever getting deliverance from that. And it's by the law that pre-existed long before his arrival ever into Nar- Narnia. It's basically a law of condemnation like Scripture teaches us, with God, there's the condemnation of sin, yes. and a price has to be paid. But this is where the allegory picks up in the story, where there's a mediator that's going to step in to save all of Narnia and to save Edmund and all these children and all the lives of this world, and that is typified by Aslan, who is the Christ-like character. So before you read your excerpt, I know we don't give a lot of movie recommendations on this broadcast, but... The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe may be a good one to watch over this Easter weekend. I like it. And Aslan is going to present himself to the White Witch, and he's going to give his life on behalf of Edmund to break the spell of darkness. The reading says, A great crowd of people were standing all around the stone table, and though the moon was shining, many of them carried torches which burned with evil-looking red flames and black smoke. But such people... Ogres with monstrous teeth and wolves and bull-headed men, spirits of evil trees and poisonous plants and other creatures whom I won't describe because if I did, the grown-ups would probably not let you read this book. A howl and a gibber of dismay went up from the creatures when they first saw the great lion pacing towards them. And for a moment, even the witch seemed to be struck with fear. Then she herself gave a wild, fierce laugh. The fool, she cried, the fool has come, bind him fast. Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies, but it never came. Bind him, I say, repeated the white witch. The hags made a dart at him and shrieked with triumph when they found that he had made no resistance at all. Then others rushed in to help them, and between them they rolled the huge lion over on his back and tied all his four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Though, had the lion chosen, one of his paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise, even when the enemy, straining and tugging, pulled the cord so tight that they cut into his flesh. Then they began to drag him towards the stone table. Stop, said the witch. Let him first be shaved. Another roar of mean laughter went up from her followers as an ogre with a pair of shears came forward and squatted down by Aslan's head. Snip, snip, snip went the shears, and masses of curling gold began to fall to the ground. Then the children, watching from their hiding place, could see the face of Aslan, looking all small and different without its mane. The enemies also saw the difference. "'Why, he's only a great cat, after all,' cried one. "'Is that what we were afraid of?' said another. "'Oh, how can they?' said Lucy, tears streaming down her cheeks. "'The brutes! The brutes! For now that the first shock was over, the shorn face of Aslan looked to her braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever.' Muzzle him, said the witch, 
and even now as they worked about his face putting on the muzzle, one bite from his jaws would have cost two or three of them their hands, but he never moved. And this seemed to enrage all that rabble even more. Everyone was at him now. Those who had been afraid to come near him even after he was bound began to find their courage, and for a few minutes the two girls could not even see him. So thickly was he surrounded by the whole crowd of creatures kicking him, hitting him, spitting on him, jeering at him. At last the rabble had had enough of this. They began to drag the bound and muzzled lion to the stone table, some pulling and some pushing. He was so huge that even when they got him there, it took all their efforts to hoist him onto the surface of it. Then there was more tying and tightening of cords. The cowards, the cowards, sobbed Susan. Are they still afraid of him even now? When once Aslan had been tied, and tied so that he was really a mass of cords on the flat stone, a hush fell on the crowd. The witch bared her arms. Then she began to wet her knife. It looked to the children, when the gleam of the torchlight fell on it, as if the knife were made of stone, not of steel, and it was of a strange and evil shape. As last she drew near, she stood by Aslan's head. Her face was working and twitching with passion, but his looked up at the sky. Still quiet, neither angry nor afraid, but a little sad. Then, just before she gave the blow, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, And now... Who has won? Fool. Did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him, as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my own hand? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life, and you have not saved his. In that knowledge despair, and die. Well, that's where we leave the story of Passion Week. And I'm sure to some degree Satan must have felt like the White Witch, that this was all a foolish act on Jesus' part. Not only had he been defeated, but now the world would belong to Satan and he would crush every one of us. But there's more to the story. And when we come back next week, we'll spend some time talking about that. <laughs> 